Thank you for being part of Parkside Green's Bible study. In 1994, Disney produced a $45 million movie that brought in a gross proceeds of over 20 times their budget, nearly a billion dollars, while winning two Academy Awards. Uh, among the cast of characters in The Lion King were two carefree outcasts named Timon and Pumbaa, who sang a hit song written by Elton John and Tim Rice entitled Hakuna Matata, which is a Swahili phrase meaning no worries. It was their life philosophy. Hakuna Matata, no worries. Just a few years earlier, in the late 1980s, Bobby McFerrin released the first a cappella song ever to reach number one on the charts and to be named the 1989 Grammy Song of the Year. It was Don't Worry, Be Happy. <laughs> and there is something deeply appealing about a life with no worries, hakuna matata, a life in which we don't worry, be happy. Uh, we, we live in an age of anxiety, so don't worry, be happy sounds great. But what we'll learn from Jesus in Luke 12 this week is that the better life slogan is don't worry, be ready. Don't worry, be ready. And the way Jesus shows us to do that is number one, focus on what's most important, Luke 12, 22 to 34, and number two, prepare yourselves for the future, Luke 12, 35 to 59. So we'll get started with don't worry, be ready in Luke 12, 22, where Jesus follows the parable of the rich fool that we ended with last week by telling his disciples, now, therefore, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, which you'll put on, for life is more than food and, and the body is more than clothing. Now we may love to eat out and go shopping, but there's a lot more to life than food and clothing. We shouldn't be preoccupied with storing up earthly wealth like the rich fool, and we shouldn't be anxious over our earthly survival, all worried about what we're gonna eat and what we're gonna wear, because life isn't about stuff, so we, we shouldn't be anxious about stuff. Don't worry. <laughs> Jesus makes his point with three arguments. Number one, ravens don't sow and reap crops and they don't build structures to store their food, right? You, you ever seen a, a raven driving a John Deere tractor or building a storage barn? Yeah, God feeds them and people are much more valuable than birds. Number two, being anxious about our life doesn't add a single hour to our lifespans. Well, let's see, if I just put in one more hour a day worrying, I think I could live an extra five years. <laughs> no, being anxious won't lengthen our lives. In fact, it may have the opposite effect. If we can't do a little thing like that, why should we be anxious about the rest? And number three, lilies don't toil or spin. I mean, you ever seen a flower? clocking into work or spinning cotton into thread? No, but not even the richest man in his prime, Solomon in all his glory, was arrayed like a lily. So if God clothes the grass, which is kind of here today and gone tomorrow, thrown into the oven, probably as fuel to bake bread in the ancient world, how much more will he clothe Jesus' disciples, men of little faith? It's not that they have no faith at all, but that they have little faith. And when we have little faith, we struggle to trust God. 
But as we pray to God, Jesus teaches us God will give us our daily bread, just what we need. God created our bodies, and God will provide food and clothing that our bodies need. We shouldn't be so focused on this life that we lose focus on the life to come. You see, we shouldn't get all tied up in anxiety, uh, worrying about what could really be considered luxuries. You know, how's my kitchen remodel doing? Is it going to turn out okay? No, Jesus' followers aren't to seek what we're to eat or drink or, or be worried about matters like those. Don't worry. Don't worry. Now, it's not that we shouldn't work to earn money to buy our food and clothing. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, that we who are able should earn our living. We should work, he says, and be dependent on no one. But Jesus' followers have a heavenly Father who knows that we need the essentials. So we shouldn't seek after material things like pagan nations that, that don't know God. Instead, we should seek God's kingdom, knowing that our Father will take care of our basic needs. No need to be anxious about food and clothing. Instead, focus on what's most important, God's kingdom. Set your heart on God's kingdom and seek treasure there in heaven. Jesus' little flock of disciples need not fear because he says it's our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. We don't have to earn our way into God's kingdom. It's a gift of God to his people. So in verse 32, we see that God is our Father, our Shepherd, and our King. What a beautiful trilogy, our Shepherd, our King, our Father. So instead of building bigger barns to ensure ourselves against all calamities, we can do a countercultural thing by actually selling our possessions and giving to the needy, which is maybe part of how God provides for their basics. In this way, we'll be providing ourselves with eternal riches, Jesus says, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief can steal and no moth can destroy, right? Excess clothes that's just sitting in our closet. No, earthly treasures, they can always be lost, but heavenly treasures cannot be lost because we know that, hey, God's got it. He's going to provide for us. Then we're free to sell some of our stuff and, and give to the needy to live a life that is rich toward God and toward others. You see, where our treasure is, there will our hearts be also. Jesus says, if our treasure's on earth, where we're probably worried about it and is it going to be okay, that's where our heart will be. And if our treasure is in the heavens, where nothing's ever stolen or destroyed, that's where our hearts will be. Our finances do provide a glimpse into our hearts, don't they? Are we focused on earthly, material things in this life, what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear? Or are we focused on God's kingdom and, and giving generously, especially to the poor and needy? Will death separate us from all the treasures we've accumulated on earth? Or will death unite us with all the treasures we've stored up in heaven? In verses 22 to 34, Jesus tells his disciples again and again in a variety of ways to focus on what is most important. And if we do that, 
then we don't have to be anxious. Now, if you are prone to anxiety or worry, and I can be, uh, realize that you're not alone. Uh, anxiety or worry is a universal human experience. And Jesus' disciples, remember the guys who were living with him 24-7 for several years, and that included daily matters like dealing with food and clothing, they needed this instruction. He's instructing his followers, don't worry, trust God. Now that doesn't mean that we're to be passive or lazy. No, we're to be ready. Remember, it's not Bobby McFerrin, don't worry, be happy. It's Jesus, don't worry, be ready. And in verses 35 to 59, Jesus says to prepare yourselves for the future. Prepare yourselves for the future. Verse 35 tells us to stay dressed for action. Uh, picturing a person with their long robe kind of tucked under their belt. They're ready to run. Uh, we, we might say today, hitch up your pants, be ready. And Jesus also tells us to keep our lamps burning. Keep the light on. Be, be ready to welcome your master home. Jesus says his followers are to be like people, like servants who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. And it, it's late at night, they want to be ready that as soon as he knocks on the door, they can open the door to their master at once when he arrives. If the master finds us awake, when he comes, we'll be blessed, he says. And in this incredible, radical reversal of roles, the master will dress himself for service. He'll have his faithful servants recline at table, and the master will come and serve those servants who he found awake when the others were apparently asleep. It may be in the second or third watch of the night. So if we want to be blessed, we will be watching and ready all the time for Jesus to return. Now, thieves, of course, come at unexpected hours of the night. A robber doesn't make an appointment for their break-in with the homeowner. I'll be there about 11, 13 a.m. tonight. No, they come at unexpected hours. And similarly, Jesus teaches his disciples. He, the Son of Man, is coming back in an hour when people do not expect. So Jesus' followers must be ready for his return at any time, 24-7. I wonder, how long has it been since you thought about Christ's return? Be ready. Be ready. James, uh, excuse me, if, a, if uh, we want to be blessed then we will be ready for his return. Now, uh, Peter asks Jesus whether he's telling this parable just for the 12 disciples, or is it for all people? Jesus never really directly answers Peter's question. Instead, he sketches a picture of what a faithful and wise manager looks like, the kind of person whom the master will set over his household, the, the one whom the master entrusts to, to give the other servants their portion of food at the right time. Well, when the master comes, if he finds that kind of that head servant doing his will, being faithful and, and a wise manager, serving as a good steward of his responsibilities, then that servant will be blessed. The master will actually even give him a promotion, it seems. I'm going to set you over all my possessions. But if a servant 
tells himself, oh, my master's delayed in coming, and, and he begins to misuse his authority and mistreat the, the servants who are under him, maybe self-indulgently eat and drink to the point of drunkenness, then that master is going to return on an unexpected day at an unknown hour and will cut that servant into pieces. Yikes! <laughs> cut him into pieces? It is a graphic picture of the judgment and the punishment that unfaithful people will face. And then Jesus explains that among the unfaithful, there will be degrees of punishment according to their degrees of knowledge. There'll be a severe beating, he says, for the servant who knew his master's will, but didn't get ready or act according to the master's will. And there will be a light beating for the one who did not know his master's will, but did what deserved a beating. Knowledge brings culpability. James 4.17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And Jesus explains the principle that much will be required of everyone to whom much was given. Or to put it another way, much will be demanded from the one to whom much has been entrusted. Now, in light of Peter's question, I think it seems like Jesus' parable is for everyone, since the master judges everyone when he returns. But there's an especially high standard for those who know what the master's will is. Those to whom much was entrusted, in this setting here, his disciples. When he returns, Jesus will judge, and he's going to bring rewards and punishments. Again, the main point is prepare yourselves for the future. Prepare yourselves for the future. And that's especially true because Jesus tells us he came to cast fire on the earth. Now, in context, I think this fire likely refers to a, a kind of a refining fire of division between those who believe in and follow Jesus and those who do not believe in and do not follow Jesus. We recall how Simeon said way back in Luke 2.34, Jesus was appointed for the fall and the rising of many. And we also remember that ever since chapter 9, Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem where he will be baptized with the baptism of an agonizing death. So as Jesus knowingly heads to the horrors of the cross, he is in great distress until he accomplishes his mission. Jesus feels the pressure of this looming event until he fulfills it. Now, in one sense, Jesus brings peace, right? He's the Prince of Peace. His death brings uh, his followers peace with God. But in another sense, Jesus coming to earth brings division. Some will accept Jesus and others will reject Jesus, resulting in division. A household of five could be divided three against two and two against three. Uh, allegiance to Jesus can separate us from those who matter most to us. Believers and unbelievers can be divided father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Many of us live this hard reality of families with various mixtures of those who follow Jesus and those who do not. 
Now, as humans, we have a lot in common with each other. We share a common origin in our ancestors, Adam and Eve. We share common value as those who are all 100% of us made in God's image and likeness. We share a common problem, 100% of us, in our sin against God. But we don't share a common response to Jesus as the solution for our problem of sin. Ultimately, humanity is divided into two groups, those who trust in and follow Jesus and those who do not trust in and follow Jesus. And that division lasts forever into eternity. So Jesus exhorts the crowds to judge for themselves what is right. right? It's, it's better to settle with your accuser before you appear before a judge who orders you to be put in prison until you've paid the last penny that you owe. Cut a deal and settle out of court before you end up in debtor's prison is the idea. Get things straightened out now. Don't delay. Much better to get in right standing with your accuser before it's too late and you have to face the judge and harsh punishment. Similarly, much better to get in right standing with God through his son Jesus before it's too late and you have to face the judge of the universe with eternal punishment lurking on the horizon. Again, Jesus' point in this section is prepare yourselves for the future. And the way to prepare for Jesus' future return is to trust in and follow Jesus now. If we're ready, we don't need to worry. Don't worry, be ready. Don't worry, be ready. Now, there's a lot of possible life applications here. As we wind things down, consider four possible applications, which are, are among many others as well. Number one, trust God's provision. Don't seek after or be anxious over material stuff. No, God knows you need the basics. Trust God's provision. Number two, seek God's kingdom. God's given us his kingdom, freeing us to give to others generously with heaven in mind. So seek God's kingdom. Number three, prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. When Jesus returns, we want to be spiritually awake and, and ready, doing our master's will when he comes back. So prepare yourself by trusting and following Jesus now. And fourthly, expect division. Expect division. Jesus told us that even within our families, this is the way it's going to be, so it shouldn't surprise us. Expect division in response to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know what we need, and there's just no reason for us to be anxious about our lives, what we'll eat and what we'll wear. You will feed us and you will clothe us, even as you've done with the birds and the flowers. Focus us, we pray, on what's most important, and give us, we pray, a spirit of generosity to sell our possessions and give to the needy. We want to be ready for Jesus' coming. We want to be spiritually awake. We want to be doing your will when your son returns. And we want to tell others about Jesus. Uh, we know that when we do that, some are going to believe and some will not. We thank you for your grace of giving us the kingdom, something we could never, ever earn. 
in response to your grace. We want to have our treasure in the heavens, and we want to have our heart in heaven where Jesus is seated right there at your right hand. We long for Jesus' return, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.